Welcome to the podcast, Working Drummer. Today we talk to Ed Toth. For close to 20 years, Ed has held down two powerhouse gigs. From 96 to 2005, Ed was the drummer and member of the band Vertical Horizon. Since 2005, Ed has been playing drums with the legendary Doobie Brothers. To find out more about this podcast and other podcasts, go to workingdrummer.net, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and also on iTunes. Here is Ed Toth. First of all, thanks. I appreciate this. Yeah. Taking the time to do that. We were going to do this outside, but uh, it's my pleasure. the wind is not cooperating, but you might hear it in the background because we have doors open and it feels good in here. Um, I kind of like to start just by uh, having you talk about what you're doing. Sure. Um, and I think people know what you're doing, but at the same time, what keeps you busy these days? Maybe something that's been going on the last few months, and then we'll we'll kind of back up from there. Sure. Well, I am currently doing a podcast. Okay, great. For so, workingdrummer.net, is that right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay, so what year were you born? Let's go back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that brings us up to date. Let's take it back to the beginning. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, the current gig, which has been my gig for the last 10 years, is playing with the Doobie Brothers, mm-hmm. um, which is been a lot of fun and really kind of surreal at the same time because my folks were fans when i was a kid right and that's how i kind of knew the doobie brothers um i i joined the doobies in uh 2005 mm-hmm. uh which was right about the time i left vertical horizon it was a little bit of overlap but not a lot mm-hmm. so i've been doing that for 10 years and uh it's been great. I mean, they, they do about 80 shows a year, mm-hmm. you know, so that keeps us pretty busy. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like we're doing a little bit more this year because they put out a, a record last year, like Country Duets. Doobie, oh. Doobie Brothers songs done in country style with country artists, mm-hmm. so um, which is done pretty good for them, I guess. So uh, there seems to be a little bit more work this year, which okay. is, you know, Always exciting when you're on a day rate that when there's more work. <laughs> oh right, right, for sure. <laughs> so for so sure. that's pretty cool. Well, eighty shows. That's I mean that's a good <clears throat> chunk, but it's not insane. Yeah, um, it allows you to kind of pursue other things uh, if you have the schedule ahead of time and you're able to look ahead and Absolutely. months ahead. So are you able to do that? Um, yeah, to a degree. I mean, I, I have a really good idea what the of what the rest of my year looks like at this mm-hmm. point. Okay, um, and it's you know it's April. We're sitting here talking, so. Um, that's a good thing to have. Um, you know, things will pop up here and there, but it's it's rare that I get information about a date that's, you know, a month or, or you know, a couple of months away. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, I'll, ne- I'll never get like, hey, we added a date next week. Are you mm-hmm. free? Like, you know, that never happens. Okay. It's, it's always far booked farther in advance than that. So. Is there are there things that uh, when you look at your schedule and say okay I'm going to be able to do this are there things that you're pursuing or are there things that come up as far as sessions or uh, doing other gigs or other you know I know there's some projects in the past that you've been a part of that you've helped create yeah things pop up from time to time it's kind of weird because I, I I don't I'm not as active as maybe I'd like to be in terms of letting people uh, know 
you know, about availability and things like yeah. that. I just kind of rely on, I mean, there, there's been a, I've been out doing this long enough that there's a little bit of word of mouth with what, what right. I do, what, sure. what I'm good at, what, you know, what, what I'm, I'm good to call for. And then every once in a while, like I get those calls, like I, I never wanted to, I mean, I didn't come to Nashville to be like studio guy. You know, mm -hmm. I came to Nashville because I was leaving one band and wanted to find really another sort of uh, find a touring gig. I, I was kind of hell bent on being a sideman when I left Vertical because I had done the band member thing. Yes. And there were great things about that. And there were other things about that where I was just like, you know, what? I just want to show up and like count to four and not have to say hey this is ed toth and you're listening to lightning 100 you know i don't i didn't i had done enough of that that and and don't get me wrong i feel very fortunate to have been able to do that but right. i had done enough of that during nine years with vertical horizon that i just wanted to show up somewhere count to four and just you know yeah unload on the drum kit and then walk off stage and and go listen to music <laughs> now are there any uh, doobie brothers songs that are in six does that mess your whole plan up and no, no, well, no, no. Yeah, that doesn't really mess things up. Okay, so, good. so that's really good. You know, <laughs> um, gosh, I think everything's just straight up four four. Think so. <laughs> your planet's coming to it's yeah. coming together. But uh, yeah, but so so that you know, again, I didn't come here to sort of throw my hat in the ring. I came here because I knew that I wanted a a gig on a certain level, and I wasn't going to find it where I was living at the time, which was Boston. Yeah. I mean, there's a ceiling in Boston, you know. So I literally did the thing that a lot of people do. And, and I mean, this is after having been in the business, you know, full time for 10 years. I took out a piece of paper and wrote down L.A., Nashville, New York, and then just started going through my day runner and made a list of all the people I knew oh. that were in those cities. Yeah. Um, and then I sort of did a pro and con thing. I had had I have two daughters and 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 I had had one already at that point. And so I had to take into account other things like cost of living, yeah. um, family atmosphere, things like that. And so I kind of ruled out New York almost immediately, yeah. um, which was a little bit of a drag because I grew up in Connecticut. And there's such a romantic notion about living in New York. And mm -hmm. I guess if I had started out as a full-time jazz player, that might make a little more sense. Yeah. Um, but I didn't really want to do that uh, you know, with having a kid. Boston was kind of like a big town. Okay. And New York is just a metropolitan city, you know. Yes, yeah. Big time, you yeah, know. Oh, yeah. So um I kind of ruled that out. I gave uh, some serious consideration to Los Angeles, but there were a couple of factors with that. One was cost of living. Mm -hmm. Um the other thing too is one of the th I lo love being in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I really do. I yeah. love the weather. I, know. I love the yeah. atmosphere. But one of the things that I love about being in Los Angeles is that I realize that at some point I will be leaving Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I thought mm -hmm. to myself, okay, that doesn't really bode well for, you know, if I'm considering being there permanently. <laughs> right. The idea of, you know, seeing people being on 100% at the grocery store because they might get discovered or whatever. I just, I don't have time for that. You right, know? right. So... I ended up here, and I knew, uh, surprisingly to me, over the course of the vertical career, I knew more people in Nashville than anywhere else, you know. Through through your experience with Vertical Horizon? Yeah, just oh, through yeah. meeting various people, okay. drummers in particular, and mm -hmm. so what I did was, uh, um, 
I have a good friend in town uh, that a lot of people in town know, a guy named Neoshi Jackson. Yeah. And Neoshi, I had met during the vertical stuff, and we stayed in touch here and there, and I would always see him when I came to Nashville. And I always liked coming to Nashville. It was one of my favorite cities to come to and and hang out at. And uh, Neoshi was just very gracious. He just said, I said, yeah, I'm thinking about coming down and hanging out for a couple of weeks and, mm-hmm. and seeing if, you know, checking the scene out and seeing if it's somewhere I want to be and sort of... Uh, inject myself into the into the scene because it doesn't regardless of your track record it stuff doesn't happen automatically you know no uh, i mean no, you have to put right. years into being in a place before things start to pick up for you right and i was aware of this no and, matter what your background yeah exactly yeah. and i and i was cool with that i just wanted to keep playing the drums you know so Niyoshi, um gentleman that he is said i have a guest room that's empty why don't you just come live wow. in my house nice and uh i'll be in and out i'll give you a key like you just come stay here so i started doing this thing which i look back now is a little mad but <sighs> you know the things that we do to pursue our living is right it's just what we do i started doing this commute where i would drive down in my car from boston um spend a couple weeks in nashville and then drive back up to boston was this no this was after you left vertical horizon yeah i was sort of in the process of leaving vertical horizon at this point we were staring down the barrel of a year where we weren't going to work in 2005 we had done a reissue of our second record which was called go and um everything about it other than the recording process and the record itself that stuff was great the promotion and everything for it was just miserable the record company changed hands while while we were doing it and it became this weird double-edged sword you know vh1 who played the hell out of like the everything you want video and the Mm -hmm. you're a god video wanted to um you know where's the video for your single you know first single was a song called um i'm still here Uh Oh, well, we haven't made one yet. So, you know, we go to the record label. Like, VH1's bugging us about a video. Well, we want to see the song do more action at radio. It's like, yeah, but you're not really helping with that, you know? (laughs) Okay. Maybe if we did the video, like, they'd help each other out. And what what year was this? This would have been, uh, Go came out in 03. September of 03, I think. Yeah, because we made it in 02. We wanted it to come out in September of '02. It was done. It was done in the summer of '02. Okay, and I, this is this is when all the record company stuff went down. Clive Davis came in as the president of RCA. Bob Jameson was let go. Everybody underneath him was let go. Our A and R guy was let go, and that's to me that's when the crack appeared on the wall. I see. Because our A and R guy was in our corner. Right. Right. Um, Got to have those people like yeah, completely on your team. Well, that and that's it. It was the team. All of a sudden, this team that was amazing with everything you want. I mean, everything you want came out in. September of 99, the album, um, had a first single called We Are, which made a little bit of dent in, in modern rock radio, but not much else. And then we released Everything You Want as a single after the new year. And it took like three months for this thing to build. It was a slow burn, mm-hmm. which just doesn't happen anymore. You're either hot out of the box or they're done with you, mm-hmm. you know? Um and people at the record label just worked it and worked it and worked it, and we were working it and working it and working it. I mean, you know, you talk about the realities of, of life on the road. I mean, you know, we would get up at about 6 every morning. We would get picked up at our hotel by the label rep. Um, 
several of which I'm still really good friends with today. Okay. Um, I play rock and roll trivia with one of them here in Nashville every okay. every other Monday at the Stone Fox. <laughs> There's a plug for you. So, um, you know, we would go and we would do like three and four radio stations around town, play a couple songs acoustic. I mean, on these morning shows, you know, yeah, like yeah, seven yeah. in the morning. Right, right. You know, with these yahoos who like are wide awake, like who love to talk and have weird sound effects whistles and stuff because they're trying to get people. I don't people. have those today. Damn. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, they're trying to get people to and from work and that's cool. And so what, what better time to be on the radio promoting your record than first thing in the morning when everybody's driving to work? Yeah. You know, so we do three and four radio stations, play a couple of songs, joke around, do do the liner stuff I was talking about. Yeah. And, and um, you know, then inevitably somebody wants to take you to lunch. You go to lunch, which is cool. You're on the road. A free meal is a free meal, you sure, know, sure. Um, unless the record rep pays for it, in which case it's going back to your account and will be a recoupable expense, which is all you, we do a whole podcast on that. Oh, stuff. my gosh. OK, um, you know, and then. By the time you get done, it's two, three in the afternoon. Maybe you have time to take a little bit of a nap, but you're kind of amped from doing all this stuff already. You go do a sound check. You get a little bit of dinner. You do the gig. You go to sleep. You wake up the next morning. You do the, do same, the same thing, thing again in another city. You know, so it was busy, 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 and and uh, and it worked. I mean, everything you want was a number one song. You know, yeah. it was number one for one. It was all over the radio that summer. Yeah. Yeah. And it was number one on the Hot 100 for one glorious week. I have a, a plaque with the chart on it. It's pretty great. Uh. And all the people below us are like Sting and Cher <laughs> and Matchbox 20, some of our peers and stuff. And it was just kind of cool, like, to see, like, you know, I, I grew up working in record stores and stuff. And we read Billboard because yeah. that's how we arranged our 45 section was from the Hot 100 chart. And there we were at the top of it. And it was just like... What a moment, you know. Yeah, I, you know, not a lot of people can say they played drums on a number one song, you know. But it wasn't lost on you all the extra work, all the. Well, no, it was the effort of several people. Yeah. Um, to to kind of make this happen, it's yeah. just not a matter of like throwing something at the wall and seeing if it sticks, right. you know. So, um, where am I at in the story? So we we made the second record, and the record comp- the team had fallen apart. Um, so the record just really didn't get the promotion it wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, the the powers that be at the the new powers that be at the label already had a vision for what they wanted the label to be, and we didn't fit in with that. So it was like, okay, well now we have to hit the road, which is was sort of part of the plan anyway. Right. Looking back, I don't think we hit the road as much or sort of as properly as we could have. We kind of. Did spot dates here and there. Okay. There wasn't re- any real tour per se, um, and that's where some weird things started to happen internally. Um, you know, just I- issues of publishing, whether or not to split publishing revenue and things like that. And um, we got, we sort of went through the cycle with the Go record, and it just didn't didn't do what we hoped it would do. Um, so we got dropped by the label. Mm-hmm. Uh, which she could see the writing on the wall that that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. So certainly to me, it, was, it wasn't that big of a surprise when that came down. And then a, a plan was floated by our management company. The management company was going to have a little record label, and they were going to reissue the record, basically, mm-hmm. and try to work one of the songs at radio that we thought could have been a hit. I wasn't totally keen on this idea. Um, so that was another thing for me that was like, it's like, like we've done this. This is done, you know? Maybe we can license that song and one of the others that we thought could have been a hit back from RCA and just make a new record. 
and and go out and do that and go the indie route like having i'm a total music nerd so sort of paying attention to what some other people were do people were just starting to do the indie thing um that's why i was asking you before like what date was this all happening and you were saying around 2003 2004 yeah well well the record was done and we wanted it to come out in september 02 and it did not come out until September of '03, a year later. Okay. It just seems like the dynamic of the music <clears throat> industry was changing a lot. Very much during those, you know, beginning like maybe mid '90s into the mid to late 2010s, with just the record labels being restructured, um, the way music is being distributed, the way artists are getting the materials out there, and the relevance of things like. MTV and VH1, how that affected music today compared to when it first started in the 1980s and how all that changed um, or how things have changed so dynamically from decade to decade. So knowing a little bit of the history of the band and, you know, it's like, what was going on? And And it sounds like, and they're still struggling, the larger labels, they're, they're fumbling about trying to figure out how to I don't know, reclaim the glory days of when they had so much control and had, now there's less control? Well, they dropped the ball completely. Yeah. And, and to me, the, the big earthquake was the Napster thing mm. um, with file sharing. And to right. me, that's where the labels dropped the ball. That's where they should have gotten on board and said, okay, mm-hmm. this is the future. Right. Let's, let's start working on models uh, to monetize this and, and you know, let's not fight it. Let's figure out stream how to revenue. Yeah. yeah, let's try to make this work. And instead, they fought it and it turned around and, and sort of bit them in the butt. The labels will, I think, always exist because they have all that back catalog. Yeah, and that's all these reissues are. And and they're so happy now that this vinyl thing seems to be, a, which personally I don't think it's a, as big of a thing as they make it out to be in the press. But you know, they the vinyl thing, everything's out on vinyl now. Well, it's yeah. just another thing to get you to buy that record again because you're not going to buy yeah. the new Katy Perry record, you know, if you're in a certain demographic. But you'll buy physical graffiti for the fourth time because either your copy's worn out or. You know, it's just an amazing I, record. Yeah, you know, guilty as charged. Yeah, I, me too, because I'm 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 a total nerd. So some of the reissues I, I've bought into, particularly when there's bonus content, mm-hmm. anything that's just remastered or whatever, it's like, come on, I, you know. I mean, most people don't realize with a lot of these remastering, all they're doing is turning it up. <laughs> you know, so it keeps, it, so you can play it on the it, newest can, fangled device that's out this week. Right. It goes you know? to eleven. Exactly. Why don't you just yeah? We okay. turn this up to eleven. We can get people to buy it again. <laughs> so you know, it's it's that kind of thing. So you know, the labels will always exist and be there. I personally, you know, when I talk to younger kids and they want advice about the record business and stuff, it's I'm amazed when. I'm amazed that getting a record deal is still a thing for some kids. And I'm just thinking, really? Why don't you just go buy a van and get a booking agent and go play? Because, and keep the money. Yeah, keep the money and build an audience because that's really the only way you can do it these days. Oh, but I got a million hits. I got a million Facebook friends. It's like, okay, cool. When can I go see you play next week? Uh, uh, okay, well, congratulations. Have fun maintaining your Facebook site. I'm going to go do a gig. Yeah, <laughs> you know what right, I mean? Right, right, right. So I, it's, it's just that weird thing. And those things are important. Don't get me wrong. I, 
in the past in 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 interviews and whatnot i've kind of crapped on social media a little bit and and still will because i think it's a little bit overblown in terms of what it can do for your career i mean i know guys that like dumped facebook they're like i'm not doing this anymore and they're still working like crazy right you know right. old school with a business card and a website yeah. you know you know things were changing at that time and and the writing on the wall to me all things pointed to sort of indie and it's like okay well look we've got this following we're i mean i think i can say now it's a little past the expiration date but we were a good band you know writing good tunes and i just thought we could have just kept going on that realm it's like okay well what's our business plan well we should put a record out every few years we should tour that record yeah then maybe take a year off and then put another record out and tour that record and take a year off and i'd do that for the rest of my life yeah no problem so we were getting into oh five and 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 we were going to do this reissue thing which i wasn't totally sold on i mean i agreed to it because everybody else was behind it and and uh it would have happened anyway if, if even if i you know made a lot of noise about it, it was still going to come out again and i'm like all right well i guess it's better than nothing and then i got a call from uh, i was sort of thinking about is this something i want to stick around for like mm. do you know do mm. i you know it was beginning to be apparent that we weren't going to be working much in 05 um my daughter was born in 03. Um, whereas we had done well on the road and with some merchandise, we, you know, we weren't sharing publishing revenue, which is where most of the money was. Mm -hmm. um, didn't recoup on the record because we spent so much money making it. Okay. You know? And there's yeah. a reality for you kids. A couple, couple million sold worldwide and no recoup. Um, and besides, that's just like your mechanical or whatever. And right. that's not a large, until you're in the Hootie and the Blowfish and Alanis Morissette numbers, 30 million 40 million records you you know it, it that that's great you you retire on that yeah. but a couple mil wasn't going to do it at, at that time yeah. so um so i had some decisions to make and as i was coming to nashville doing these commutes and trying to find work and and whatnot I get a call from Michael Hasek, who was one of the original Doobie Brothers drummers. Yeah. And we he was a vertical fan. And that's how we met. And uh, we did a show out at the Warfield in San Francisco. And mm -hmm. uh, we shared a booking agent at the time. And I just called up the agent. And uh, I said, Kevin, invite anybody from the Doobies camp to the Warfield. I'll, oh, okay. I'll buy the ticket. If we go over on the list, I'll buy the tickets. Like, I want to meet these guys. They're my heroes. Like, yeah, love yeah. the Doobie Brothers, you know? Yeah. Anyway, Mike Hossett came out that night, and their manager, Bruce, came out that night. And um, it was kind of a surreal night. Phil Lesh was there that night. Oh, man. Yeah. You think, like, Phil Lesh at a Vertical Horizon concert. And, he, and apparently he stood by the soundboard and sung along to, like, every tune. And it was just like, well, that's kind of weird. And then I thought, well, I mean, I listen to all kinds of music. Why wouldn't Phil Lesh? Sure, you know? sure. So it was just kind of a neat night, you know, meeting some of these people. And, and uh, Mike and I just kind of hit it off and became friends. So anyway, uh, Keith Knudsen, who was other doobie drummer from back in the day, um, died in January of or January or February of '05, mm -hmm. and um, I got a call from Mike about a month or so later, and he said, "Hey, we're gonna keep doing two drummers. We're gonna have auditions. It's we're not gonna do a cattle call. We're just inviting a couple of people down. You want to come down and play?" He had known from being my friend that I was batting around the idea of. Okay. Greener pastures and sure. and I, this chapter of my life, musically speaking, with vertical, it looks like it's it's going to close. And and I said, yeah, I'd love to come play. And I immediately was like, 
these guys are 20 years older than I am. <laughs> um, they've got guys that they know that they're friends with on, on the audition, right. you know, uh, who have been working with Crosby, Stills and Nash and, and Booker T and people like that. I'm like, this will be cool. I'll go out to Burbank on their yeah, dime. You'll have a story to tell. I'll be in a yeah, Doobie Brothers exactly. for a half hour. It'll right. be awesome. You know, yeah, right. I'll get my picture taken with everybody. I maybe ask for an autograph if it doesn't seem too cheesy and, yeah. and be done with it and get to say hi to my friends in yeah. Los Angeles for a couple of days. Um, got the gig. Yeah. got. I went out and did the audition and just had a ball with it. Like, this is great. And, you know, it it was in my benefit that I knew a lot of the material because there was a list. There was a song list, like learn these six tunes. And it was all the ones you'd sort of expect. Blackwater, China Grove, listen yeah. to the music. Long Train, they had a live arrangement of Long Train running that they wanted me to learn oh, okay. Off, okay. Of the, off of their Live at Wolf Trap uh, DVD. And But then Tommy called a tune that wasn't on the audition list. And I think one of the other guys was like, hey, that's not on the list. And I was just like, hey, it's okay, let's do it. You know, yeah. So it's just that that preparedness. I forget what the saying is, but preparedness plus opportunity equals it, it, whatever. Yeah, luck. Luck is the equation of yeah. yeah but you know, it fell into play. But. That kind of thing. But yeah. um, so it was just fun. And I auditioned on a Monday. They still had to do a round of guys on Tuesday, so I had to hang around for a day to see what right. the deal was. Right. Now there was something going on that weekend with Vertical, which in Heinz, which I ended up subbing out. Because I got the gig with the Doobies, they wanted me to stick around for the rest of the week to rehearse. Oh, and okay. it, yeah, whoever got the gig was expected to stick around for the rest of the week to rehearse. Um, so I subbed out two vertical gigs that weekend yeah. to my buddy Craig McIntyre, who ended up playing with him for a little while. Um, in hindsight, I would have kept those gigs because it made uh, subbing those gigs out made my relationship with Matt a little contentious for a little while. Mm. And it was, I, was it just because it was so close to and the And I understand why. Well, I'm, yeah, it was close to it. And, and it, you know, it just, it, you know, in hindsight, it all worked out and it's no big deal. Right, but right. professionally speaking, I might have handled that a little different. But, um, you know, it, it was, I was going to say something. I just lost my train of thought. I, I, I uh, the the gig the gig was an opportunity for me and Ma- I mean Matt was the first person I called Matt Scannell who's the yeah, singer of Vertical right, Horizon right and who had he was the first person I called when I got called for the audition oh I said hey listen I, I just I need to talk to you about something here like I just got called about this what are we doing this year because right. he he was kind of steering the ship at that point and yeah he said man I, I just don't know that I want to do anything this year he was a little let down by the failure of the second major label record and the okay. fact that we'd been dropped by the label and stuff like so that. So maybe he sympathized with what you were well, and thinking I, about or where you were I going. I didn't understand it at the time and I get it a little bit more now as the primary songwriter in that band. Maybe he had a little more pressure on his shoulders to deliver. Mm-hmm. I thought he delivered st- stunningly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought some of the songs on Go were better than everything you want. I mean, I think it's a better record. I mean, my perspective is very different from everybody else's because I was there in the trenches sure. for, yeah, right. for both of them. But you know, I thought it was a better record and definitely stood more of a chance than it actually got. So in hindsight, I can see how he was bummed out by it. But at the time, I was just kind of like, this sucks. We have a band. We have a brand name. We have a fan base. Let's get on with it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I hate to use this word because it's, it's, a, it's a buzzword, but these, these are the realities of being in bands. 
you know, there was income inequality there. Right. He could afford to take the year off. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. I could afford, have afforded at the time to take the year off as well, but my money was kind of like rainy day money and it wasn't going to be continuous like publishing money, right, you know? Right, right. And I had a kid at that point and yeah. it was like, okay. So I initially thought, like, okay, well, I'm going to go do this. And Matt was behind me 100% okay. to go audition for okay. the doobies. Let me, let me put that out there as well. Um, he said, man, it's like a dream gig. You should definitely go. I'm not really sure where I'm sitting with VH and all that stuff Mm -hmm. either. So cool. Uh, So I thought initially, which is, it's kind of funny looking back on it now. I thought, okay, well if I get this gig, I'll like play with the doobies in 05 and the end of the year, vertical will get back together in a conference room somewhere and talk about what we want to do the following year. And it just didn't, happened that way yeah. about a month into my first run with the doobies i got a call from the aforementioned craig mcintyre he's like dude what's up i said uh nothing what's up with you he's like matt just called me asked me if i wanted to do six weeks with vertical I oh said, wow i said go do it man they had ended up putting some shows together with with the pat mcgee band and and i said well i'm unavailable <laughs> so right so go for it enjoy you know? enjoy yeah and i had put a statement after i got the doobies gig i did put out a statement at that time effectively telling fans that i was leaving yeah 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 because um, i didn't know what the future held for them and uh i figured i'd get at least five years out of the doobies and it's been 10 now yeah which is kind of crazy uh and mike has since passed Right. Mike Hasek and Tony P has been playing drums with us for uh, five years now. So uh, it's been a good gig. It's been a good gig. It's been a, a rewarding gig, uh, musically speaking. And, uh, you know, wish we change the tunes up a little bit, but that's the, the danger of being in a band that has so many hits. Yeah, quite the catalog. You know? so, uh, but it's been fun, and I would imagine there's at least a few more years Right of gas left in the tank. So I was trying to think of when I saw you uh, the first time I saw you playing with them. Uh, we were we were taking pictures before um, you were in Copper Mountain, Colorado. Was it two thousand? It was probably shortly right out uh, shortly bef- after you got the gig. So it might have been. Yeah, I've been up there a couple of times since. Okay, so somewhere between. Mike Hasek was there, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, and he 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 left the road in 2010. So it was somewhere between 05 and, and somebody and was sick in the band, and you guys. Oh, were... Tommy. Yeah, Tommy had had a vocal operation. Yes. Yeah. So that I mean, shoot, that would have been like 07 or 08, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I may have actually sung on that gig. I sang on like two gigs, and uh, the headset mic that they had for me was just the most uncomfortable thing ever. <laughs> And so, I mean, I wanted to get a full-on, like, stage mic stand, kind of like what Carter Beaufort has. Yeah, big, right, right. Know, like, I just push out of the way and, and uh-huh. pull or, or have a tech but you were swing Garth, in when I need Garth to. Brooks in it. What, what do you think, Jeremy? Could have swung in. My drum tech Jeremy's here. and he's uh, He could have swung in a microphone and, and all that. So <laughs> he's too busy taking pictures during the gig. But, but um, yeah, and it just didn't really work. And you know the whole front line was singing and so i just kind of bagged on it but there i think there were two or three gigs in my doobie brothers career where i actually sang backups so do you sing i mean do you sing i can yeah i i haven't in a long time and did you sing in vertical horizon uh, i did i sang when we when we promoted go i sang on a few tunes okay um to cover some parts and um you know i sang in high school as in chorus and all that Mm -hmm. stuff and um I can sing, I, I can carry a pitch, I can sing harmony. It's been a while, so if I was going to do it 
or if I knew I had an audition coming up, I mean, I would be sitting in my room with my keyboard singing scales all day, every day, leading up to the thing, oh, just, wow. to, just to get it back. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those muscle things. And Simmons, every once in a while, he'll catch me singing something on the bus, and, he, and he'll be like, going to get you a microphone. I'm like, <laughs> come on, man. You got, you got enough singers in this band. You don't need, yeah. the, you don't yeah. need the drummer singing. You know, yeah. Don Henley, Phil Collins. It stops right there, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Let's let's go back a bit. I, I want to kind of go back to the beginning and, and talk about. Um, you said you uh, your father was a guitar player, mm-hmm. and uh, was that kind of the catalyst to get you interested in in music? I, you know, it's funny because I I've said many times I just I don't remember music not ever being there. Right. Um, right. So when I was a kid. Um, my my dad was a guitar player. He still is a guitar player, a very good guitar player. Um, and he had a jazz gig in New London, Connecticut that he had. They played five nights a week for seven years. I mean, those were the days, you know. Right, I mean, right. That, and that's in suburban Connecticut, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. But uh, he did that when I was very young. So there was music always playing around in the house. And um, it was very varied um, because he liked everything. Mm-hmm. So... As a guitar player, he was really into Howard Roberts and Wes Montgomery. Oh, right. You know, and then for the rock stuff, he was into the Doobies, and he loved the horn band, Chicago, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Mm -hmm. uh, Tower. You know, he was into R&B stuff, Rufus, Stevie Wonder, I mean. But then he he was also into the Eagles, like a lot of the California stuff, Linda Ronstadt. Uh Um, So there was always stuff being played in the house, and he was like a hi-fi guy. He had a really nice turntable and a reel-to-reel tape deck and and you know the stereo was kind of like his shrine his domain and the story goes that he got so fed up with me mucking about with the tapes and stuff like that that he just showed me how to use it when i was like (laughs) three years old like okay this is how you thread the tape through here and then you put it in the empty reel over here and and do that so and he didn't want me scratching up his records either right so um my earliest memories are he 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 was the guy that i became so there were mixed tapes you know he would put his favorite tunes on a tape and run that all day long while he was practicing or you know doing whatever before he went out to gig and uh the earliest songs i remember oddly enough he he had a mixed tape that had listen to the music on it by the doobie brothers Mm -hmm. um summer breeze seals and croft um wooden ships crosby stills and nash okay um uh Saturday in the Park Chicago yep. I mean the these song these specific songs are the ones that I remember tell me something good like Rufus no, like no. these are the specific songs that I remember kind of hearing first and I can see the living room of the house and yeah. I mean and we moved out of this house by the time I was 5 years old but I still but the impression was made you know, big time yeah. you know and I had this show and tell record player it was like a Fisher Price thing where you put in a little film strip and you ran a 45 and it was connected so as the story of the 45 went by the film strip would kind of move and and there was a screen in the front oh yeah well that that wouldn't do because jack spratt could eat no fat like i wasn't very interested in that but (laughs) the elton john don't shoot me i'm only the piano player record was far more interesting to me because crocodile rock was on it right right and and i just and so he gave me a couple of his records early on the Mm -hmm. csn record was one of them the first Mm -hmm. one with them on the porch you know and the Elton record and a couple of Ventures records. He was way into the oh, Ventures. Oh, cool. Um, Ventures in Space in particular just flipped me out because it had weird noises on it. And 
I was just scared that it was scary music. And, you know, I listen to it now and it's like ahead of its time, you know. Yeah. But, you know. Did they do a version of the Star Wars theme? They might have later in the 70s. Who knows? But they were. I think they were I a have surf, a recording of that surf guitar band. Yeah, sure. yeah. I know. I just I I came across it when I was looking at, up surf music, and I'm a big Star <laughs> Wars fan. Yeah, me too. And actually, and it's the weirdest, but it's total 70s. But it has all these crazy keyboard sounds. Oh, and, it's yeah. It's just it's spacey, and I'm wondering if it's from that. Oh uh, no, Ventures in Space came out in '67. Okay. Um, Mel Taylor on drums, amazing drummer, okay. and it, everybody should check check that record out. It's just got some really trippy, wild yeah. Tarantino. What people would think is being a soundtrack to a Tarantino movie okay. kind of music yeah, on right. it. And uh, but you know, the cover fascinated me. It was that. Yeah. It was those yeah. times. You know, and and. I distinctively remember hearing the song Daniel by mm. Elton John. And mm-hmm. I know now as an adult what it's about, but as a kid right. listening to it, it was like, you know, you know, Daniel, my brother, you were older than me. You were older than me. Oh, did something happen to, to his brother? Like what, you know, cause I had a brother, yeah. you know, and like, what, well, what happened? Like, this is kind of sad. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he's a star in the face of the, sky or whatever and it's just everything about it spoke to me the words the music Mm -hmm. the cover and elton was elton so oh yeah look at this guy biggest star in the 70s yeah so i mean those are the things that you know i I listened to ben ben caesar's Mm -hmm. uh, podcast that you did and right and and he's right on man there's there's the mystique of being a musician and being like a rock and roller is gone and that's one of the mm-hmm. things that drew me to it when I was a kid, yeah. you know. So uh, you know, there's something that's drawing. But see, I'm we're the same generation, uh, and and as Ben as well. And I've had uh, some younger guys that I've talked to, uh, well, as we all have talked to, but specifically on this podcast. And there's, it's nice to see that excitement. It's nice to see that interest in music. It's different music sometimes, and we all get to our place different paths the excitement comes from different places now i think it does and there's i don't think there's any right or wrong way because i'm no doubt i'm seeing some young people come up and just killing it and sounding great um but there is the roman and not to sound like an old old dude (laughs) back in my day get off my lawn right (laughs) but there there is uh it's funny now because i have kids and and they know what vinyl is, and they know how to work the turntable as well. Mm-hmm. And we open up the, the the fold-out records, and we look at the pictures, and we talk about the funny clothes they're wearing, and the, and the lyrics printed out, and all those things. And so my kids are seeing that. I know there's this, this middle generation that maybe didn't see that or had CDs and things like that. But it, I'm just trying to figure out if... Are we... Are the... Is the younger generation missing anything from this? Um, or are they just finding a new way to get to where they are? I think they're probably just finding a new way. And I think anything you can find to get you into something is great. I mean, yeah, it's a drag that when they go see um, whatever band, let's say Fleetwood Mac, they were just here. Right. If they go see Fleetwood Mac, they know everything about Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. When we went to see Fleetwood Mac, you didn't know anything about them other than what was on the album cover. Mm-hmm. Maybe they did 
Don Kirshner's rock concert. Maybe your parents let you stay up until midnight so you could watch it. But there was no MTV. Maybe they showed up in one of the three music magazines that existed at the Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. But if you wanted to see somebody, you had to go see them. And so when they walked out on stage, it was like, holy crap. Like, there's the Doobie Brothers. It's them. They're in my city. They're right there. They're about to play music. I mean, it blew you away the moment they walked on stage. They really were kind of like gods. On the flip side... I would have loved to have watched a drum clinic on YouTube when I was 14 oh, years I know, old. I know, I know. I would have loved to have seen uh, cell phone footage of whatever concert was given ever. <laughs> like, I mean, I have a love hate relationship with that because I hate when I see them on stage. Yeah. Because I feel like, well, you're missing out on a totally unique experience. By sitting there and holding your phone up and watching it through your phone instead of just turning your phone off and like digging what's going on, you know. On the other hand, like I said, it's kind of cool that I mean I didn't go see I didn't go see Fleetwood Mac a couple of days ago in Nashville, right, so right. it was cool that I was able to watch a couple of tunes on YouTube. Well, and do you think it's funny? Um, well, two things. I, I, I don't want to get too far off because I, I want to add to that. Sure. Uh, but I, going back, uh, I saw a video footage. It was like, 1976 or 75, the Grammys, and <laughs> Bowie comes out, and there's this collective uh, reaction from the audience, right. and he is just he's looking like an alien, but just so rock and roll, it's so amazing, no doubt. And uh, but you hear the audience collectively. <gasps> They can't believe it, and it's but because they're not seeing every little thing about him, and it was probably more impactful that he was there. He was he was making his groundhog appearance yeah. on the Grammys, and he well, looked amazing. You said a, a really very very important word there, and it's impactful. Mm-hmm. So how can you make an impact today mm-hmm. when everything is available? When I listen to a Pat Metheny record, I can get transported to a different place. When I go see Pat Metheny and listen uh-huh. to him live, uh-huh. it's that times a hundred for me. Well, and I, hey, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. But I'm, I'm, but I'm wondering: is is there an example in pop music where that would be more uh, applicable? Only because when I think of uh, that, you know, genre of, of improvisation, yeah, you you get the record, you get you're capturing the moment. Sure. Um, even though Pat Metheny's a little bit more arranged than than most, uh, you know, jazz that, that genre, but at the same time, yeah, I've seen Pat Metheny twice, and just yeah. you've got to you've got to go to experience what's going on yeah. beyond the record in that genre. But for people that are trying to break into pop culture, and we're talking about pop music that has to sell in order to make money, if you're doing that route. Yeah, I mean, well, to me, that's a totally different animal. I mean, there's a totally different animal between playing music and being a musician and being a celebrity or pop culture icon, Right. I think. Um, So so going back to being a musician, which is kind of what... I think this is about which, which I think. God, most, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, I mean, what where my interests lie, and I ever, which is kind of the reason why I started this, is mm-hmm. is, is, is as a musician uh, and our interest in in honing our craft and being better musicians, and the, and everyone that's probably interested in, in what we're talking about. That's what it's about. We're not trying to become superstars here. We're trying right. to like like how do you become. A working drummer. A working hey, drummer. See what I did there? Oh, very good. In, in, in amidst all the noise, I, I think the most important thing is to tune out the noise. 
I think the most important thing is to in and and again we'll we'll go back to Uncle Pat here, Mr. Matheny, who always says in interviews and and I kind of steal this from him because I think it's great. Decide what it is that you want to do within the realm of music and then just go do that. Mm-hmm. Just tune out every just go do what it is you want to do and do it 100% to the best of your ability mm-hmm. and things will happen for you. Mm-hmm. And you will work. Yeah. I think if you try to cater to tastes, if you mm-hmm. try to be what you think other people want you to be, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to fail. Yeah. Like go do something else. Yeah. But you know, but if you decide like I want to be a working drummer, go be a working drummer and then people say, "Okay, well how do you do that?" And it's like, "You know what? There's no if there was a formula, it would be bottled and sold and right. everybody would be doing it." Right. There is no formula. The most important thing to do that is to go play and go play with as many people as possible. Right. Take every gig. Because I never got a gig from Facebook. I never got a gig from having a business card. I never got a gig from having a bang up website. I got a gig because I got recommended by somebody else that I played music with. Right, right, right. And that's how that's how you do it. I've got a perfect question for you um, that is related to what you were just talking about. Um, there was a question, there was an uh, d- online discussion with drummers in town here in town and somebody posed the question um (coughs) is it worth videotaping yourself doing drum covers you know there's two ways to look at it is one anything you have that's out there that you can direct somebody to is probably a good thing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know it's one thing to sit down and play along with a record it's another thing to sit down and play with a group of people Mm -hmm. and when you have to react off of one another yeah. If you're trying to get a gig, yeah. um, it's another thing if you're auditioning for an original band and they want to see what, you know, if I had a band and I needed a drummer and I wanted to see how they thought musically within the realm of my music, I really wouldn't give two shits if they played the hell out of Rosanna mm-hmm. because it has nothing to do with what I'm doing. Yeah. So, um, again, like, you know, it's a mixed feelings thing. It's hard for me to say because... And maybe it's early on, I mean, because this is kind of a newish. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is, you know, all, all I have to go on is my experience. And my experience has been just playing with people. Yeah. You know, playing with as many people as possible. What, all different styles of music, whatever yeah. you like. Like, again, like, what do you want to do? Do that. Yeah. If you want to make a YouTube cover of, of a song? Yeah. Do do that. Who knows? Maybe it, right. will, maybe it will be something. Um. Because there are so many of them, it yeah. becomes part of the noise we were talking about earlier. I talked to Steve Eby yesterday, and we were talking about drummers that work in bands and record, and then there's drummers that do clinics, and he goes, I call them drum, the drum heroes, and then the working drummers, you know, the two distinctions. And now there seems to be an offshoot of that, the person, and I think even Ben gets into that a little bit, where it's there's the, there's the player that... Uh, they don't work with a lot of people. Uh, maybe they're not. Maybe I don't know what the goal is. And maybe it's a new part of the industry that's cr- that's being created where they're doing videos online. It's it's not necessarily for students. It's not necessarily for getting gigs. It's you know. So I'm just I, I don't know. This has just kind of been a newer phenomenon, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with 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 our conversation with you directly. It's okay. But I'm posing that because of yeah. your experience. And I think people need to be careful. 
um, because I've seen some of this stuff. And for a young drummer coming up that doesn't know anything about anything, I mean, some of that stuff is wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some wrong information out there. And, yeah, and, yeah. and well, that's a very good point. Better that's ways good. of yeah. doing things and different ways of doing things. I mean, the, the, <clears throat> it's the drawback of the world we live in today. And I think that is, can we, you could take that video thing and that drummer career thing and mold it into music as well. And it's become so easy to record. You can make a recording in your living room. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it's going to be any good. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody gives me a stack of wood and a box of nails and a nail gun, theoretically, I could build a house. Mm-hmm. It's not going to come out very good because I don't know anything about woodwork and physics and yeah. and building a house to build a good house. Yeah, and people forget that. Well, so just because you think, yeah. just because you have the tools to do something doesn't mean that you can do it. It doesn't mean that you're particularly any good at it. And then the other thing I say is what makes you think that people are going to be interested? Well, you start to get followers and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But again, like what are your credentials? What are your, Mm -hmm. I don't, are they building credentials by getting followers? I don't know. I'm not so sure. I'd want to take the advice of somebody that has never gigged with other musicians before. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, you, learning a groove from a song is one thing. But learning how to play music is really different mm-hmm. from learning how to do 50, 50 ways to leave your lover. Yeah. I mean, plenty of people can learn that and do well with it and knock it out of the park. But when you're sitting with a group of musicians playing that song, is it grooving? Mm-hmm. Is it happening? Are the changes correct? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a really strange area. And I think... It's great that all that stuff's out there, but I really think that people should tread lightly because it, it it can be really easy to get lost in, I mean, let's face it, it's called virtual reality for a reason. Yeah. And spend more time in reality, mm-hmm. going to see bands, mm-hmm. playing again with as many people as you can play with. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't stress that enough, Yeah. you know? So I want to go back to what got you into just playing drums because your dad is a guitar player, so yeah. why not guitar? And <clears throat> Well, it's funny. One of the earliest pictures of me with an instrument is with a guitar, but it just didn't take. And, you know, I was... Can I, I had, see a picture of that? It sounds really cute. Uh, yeah, along. right? <laughs> well, I had the wooden spoons and, and the Quaker Oats box and all that, and yeah. that's really what I dug. And I think, you know, the, my dad just recognized that. Mm-hmm. And then I remember one day, I think I was five or six, we were driving by a yard sale and there was a little set of drums out front, Mm -hmm. right up the road. Mm -hmm. And by a little set of drums, I mean little. It was a kick drum with a cymbal mounted on the top of it and a snare drum. Yeah. That's it. And I talked my dad into walking up the street and buying them for me. Mm -hmm. And so we did it. And I started taking lessons at uh, the local music shop and started learning how to read and, and things like that. And those were good experiences. And there was a guy that played with my dad named John Pescatello. And so to be super young, like six years old, seven years old, wanting to learn how to play the drums and knowing a drummer mm-hmm. was like wild. I mean, he was like a rock star to me, mm-hmm. you know, he was like the guy, yeah. you know, um, 
And this is the guy that passed away later on and right. when I was 14, and I ended up taking his place in my dad's yeah, group, crazy. and that was kind of like my first gig. And yeah, I'm still very close to his daughter today and, and uh, good friends with the family. And I, I wish he was around to, to see some of this and to share some of this because I learned a lot from him, you know, mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. playing the drums and different approaches and stuff. I, one song in particular is Doobie Brothers' song, Take Me In Your Arms. I remember trying to play that song and it has a really quick 16th note pattern on a hi-hat like Mm -hmm. tom sawyer style Mm -hmm. you know i just couldn't do it my little eight-year-old arm couldn't couldn't keep up with that and he just said well you know one way you could do it is like this and he showed me two you know two hands on the hi-hat yeah you know and it's like yeah you you kind of miss a beat when you hit the snare but you still you could still groove it that way and and i remember this specifically you know and and uh and it's little things like that are really cool and and Again, just knowing a drummer was was really mm-hmm. cool. Having access to that, you know, um, and so yeah, I just you know, and lessons were here and there for a little while because my folks didn't have a ton of money. But I also grew up. I grew up in Connecticut, and and it was at a time where I mean, I was able to join band in fourth grade. Mm-hmm. We had a symphonic thing, sure. you know. Oompa oompa, we're playing the Happy Days theme. Everybody's happy, you know. Um, but it was a great experience because it, I started to learn what it's like to play in an ensemble with other people, um, keeping the reading chops up, you know, and and participating in music daily. So I mean, what what wasn't to like, right. you know? And as I progressed into high school. I had to gig with my dad's band for a while, which was cool. And I mean, the first time we I played with them, I was in eighth grade, and we played this bowling banquet. And my math teacher happened to be on the bowling team. Oh, cool! And she was kind of a, a you know, she was a decent looking lady, and no teacher crush or anything. But like, you know, when she came up to me and was like, "Oh, I didn't know you were part. I didn't know you played the drums. This is great. You play so yeah, good." Yeah, and yeah. and it was like, okay, well, there's 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 the one factor that people get into this for right and then at the end of the night my old man handed me a hundred bucks what 14 years old i'm like okay there's another factor that people get into this for and the main factor was i just had a blast yeah playing man eater and you know i ran by flock of seagulls and (laughs) proud mary and my version of swing for in the mood during during the dinner hour <laughs> and uh, all the various hits of the of the day you should hear how she talks about you by melissa manchester and mm, whatnot yeah. i was playing drums in a band and i was playing with my dad which was cool and i only got, you played don't stand so close to me by <laughs> police with your math teacher right there yeah we know this yeah, is that, yeah. <laughs> this is perfect yeah, that would have been crazy right but um i mean it was a big moment. I, I remember driving back home from that with my dad, just being on like, and the, the gig was at some lodge in the woods somewhere in like Chesterfield, Connecticut or something like that. And, and I just remember this total feeling of elation. Like this yeah. is what, this is awesome. Yeah. You know, do you ever feel like you're constant, like you hold on to that feeling. You're constantly looking for that or not looking for it, but it's like, you know what it's like. Yeah. For, to get that, that satisfaction, that thing that completely changed your life, that feeling that in the midst of the realities of life, the realities of the music business being what they are, your experiences 
with the original original band record labels and all that stuff and, yeah. and now playing with the band that you grew up with it's like you're I, it just seems to me that it's enabled you to put your priorities in a place where you're like no 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 this is what's important to me i know what it's like to feel good to to have this experience that's motivated me to like do something that's that's just uh dangerously irresponsible as a career <laughs> because <laughs> because it this is this is what i need yeah and what it is is it's a continuation of those experiences yeah. you know i mean yeah. you know you know we work at what we do and we work very hard yeah and like any other job some days you don't feel like going to work mm-hmm. but you still have to go to work and make it happen yeah. and so the little things that I always remember are I always pretend that there's at least one person in the audience who is paying ridiculous, meticulous attention to what I'm doing. Yeah. Whether it's a drummer or whatever. Yeah. And I don't want to let that person down. Yeah. And hopefully I can make somebody walk out of a gig with the feeling that I get walking out of gigs. Mm-hmm. Like that was awesome. I want to go home and practice or whatever. Right. Um, Realistically, it, you don't always get there, but I try to do that every night. I try to, to you know, just do that. You know, there was a great interview with uh, Brian Blade, a fantastic drummer. Yeah, and I'm, I hope I'm getting this right. This is the way I remember it, anyway. He was talking with Wayne Shorter about music, and there are so many great Wayne Shorter quotes. There should be a bathroom. Book, like everything I need to know about life I learned from Wayne Shorter yeah. you know what I mean and he was talking about those nights he's like you know I just go up there and with a full tank and I just empty it out and sometimes at the end of the night I, there's, I've just got nothing left and, and Wayne said why don't you go up empty and fill it Holy moly. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, wow, man, just get chills now yeah. talking about it. But uh, I think that was the context of the quote. But I mean, so I try to think a little bit like that. It's like, okay, I'm going up to play China Grove for the one millionth time. Mm-hmm. What can I get out of it tonight that I haven't gotten out of it before? Is it is it one fill in one spot that I've never played before? Mm-hmm. Is it, you know, and that can be difficult sometimes when you're doing it night after night. Oh, yeah, you know, for sure. Um, you know, I'd love, I'd love to have a sit down with guys like Todd Zuckerman and, you know, guys that are in the same mm-hmm. boat. It's like, you know, we're playing with these sort of, uh, older artists who've been around for a long time and there are songs that are expected to be played right. and we're out there every year. It's not like, you know, Neil going out and doing a tour and playing Tom Sawyer again and then taking a year and a half off and then going out and do it again. That's a totally different experience. Sure. Sure. You know? Um, so you know, I'd be a little curious as to some other guys take on it too, but you try to find something every night that, that reminds you like, yeah, man, this is, this is why I do sure. this. Well, and, and, and kind of going on your point of, about playing the same song over and, and finding something in it. I remember when I was, I was working at a, a drum store in Columbus, Columbus pro percussion. And, uh, we're all sitting around and we're, you know, in our early twenties talking about, Oh yeah, I got like six songs to learn for this weekend. Oh yeah. I got 12 songs to learn. And I got all these new songs. Yeah. I got a rock. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not so, gigging this weekend. <laughs> 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 so we're, we're just talking about, and, uh, 
the owner comes in, who's an incredible player. He says, you know what? Playing new songs, that's easy. Playing the same material and making it fresh and exciting every night is the challenge. Yeah. He shut us down real quick. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God. He's right. Yeah, and it's the difference. Now I get it. <laughs> it's, 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 it's knowing the stuff, too. I mean, I'll often go back and reference some of the original recordings if I feel like I'm getting stale on something. And, oh, yeah. Um, and I see that around town a lot. I see, you know, if you're going down Broadway, and I mean, Broadway's an easy target, but, you know, you're going down Broadway and somebody's playing Sweet Home Alabama for the umpteenth time. And you're just sitting there and, and you're just like, you're playing it wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a case of we've all heard Sweet Home Alabama a hundred times. How many times have we listened to Sweet Home Alabama? I mean, do you know what the kick drum pattern is for that song? You know? Mm. So that kind of thing. It's the, it's the difference between hearing and listening. That's a tough one. I I, I mean, I I totally get your point Uh, to me. That's a tough one because it's like that, that song, Brown Eyed Girl, they're really great songs. Yeah. They really are good songs. No doubt. They've just been worn out so much. Well, that's the yeah. thing. It's like, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not, ab- fault is that? I'm not above <laughs> any gig. I don't think that I'm above any gig. But I really don't want to play Brown Eyed Girl ever again yeah. unless I'm playing it with Van Morrison. Yeah. Then I'll play yeah. it. Yeah. And I'll play the hell out of it. <laughs> yeah. Pink yeah. Houses, same deal. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I'd rather play Pink Houses on guitar than on drums. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because yeah. I've done it enough times on drums, yeah. you know? Sure, sure. But then again, like, I say that, and, like, we are creatures of habit. If somebody called me for a gig tomorrow and I wasn't doing anything, and it's with people I haven't really played with before, and, and I know that they're decent, I'm going to go play. Yeah. And if they call Pink Houses, guess what? I'm playing Pink Houses. Yeah. But it's cool because I haven't played it in a few years. So, <laughs> you know, just don't ask me to do it again next week. I've got to chart it out if you need it. <laughs> oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Cool. Um, actually, I do, but that was from a really long time ago. <laughs> of course. And 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 what a great and that's a great way to to hone things too. Oh, I know. Take I something you've heard a million times and just yeah. sit at home and write a chart. What has your experience been with the Doobies as far as um, how much flexibility do they, how much trust do they have? I mean, obviously 10 years, so they've got trust in you. Mm-hmm. But when you first started, you were saying, these guys are 20 years older than me. They have all these other players that they can call. But something about what you've been doing is you know, is, is obviously working, and you're saying, hey, can I try this different fill on China Grove? Um, but there's, there's a history there. Mm-hmm. And... Um, what is their take on how, or what's your relationship with them musically as far as retaining that history? Or they've never said a word to me about like what to play. I think we've discussed a couple of sections a couple of different times, and and it was referenced like, oh, you know, back in the old days, you you know, you know, Hartman used to play mallets on this part on the toms. Do you think maybe you could do that? And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, sure, I'll give it a go. And I gave it a go at first, and it didn't really feel right, mm-hmm. and so I took it out. And I was went back to playing sticks. I, I took the whole tom tom part out and just grooved over that section. Mm-hmm. And I was probably about a month later, and Simmons came to me again and said, "Hey, man, I really like to try to get the the mallet thing on there, you know." Mm-hmm. And I said, "All right, well, let me give me a week, you know, give me a few gigs to try to settle into it." I said, "When when we did it a while ago, it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel natural." And this was one of those cases where I went back and listened to the original recording again. How many years had you been playing with them at this this time? um, This was a few years into it. 
Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. And so at first he didn't mind that it wasn't there, and then he kind of missed it. Like, and and he he was probably like the rest of us. Sometimes it's just like, okay, what can we do to give this section a little extra? I'm missing a little lift in this section, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so I went back, and and uh, it wasn't a part that was on the record. It was something that he did live. Mm. So I just kind of came up with something that kind of put my spin on it in a yeah. way that it was comfortable and worked for me and and he loved it so we we left it in nice. you know and it's two drummers so i you know the whole show's to a click oh so the whole show's to a click so tony and i are never that far off yeah you know i mean there'd be a couple flams here and there's mm-hmm. just natural when you're pl- i think when you're playing with another drummer because you feel things a little bit differently yeah but um for the most part, we're right on with it, and there are elements of the show where I know he's taking that fill, I'm taking this fill. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we go back and forth. Mm-hmm. We do some fills in unison. Uh, we do a couple of cool Phil Collins, Chester Thompson things mm-hmm. where we're playing, you know, like you know, back oh, and forth, cool. which is fun. But it never gets out in like King Crimson Land or anything like that. I mean, it's yeah. the Doobie Brothers, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a band that, it, quite frankly, I you know doesn't really need two drummers, but they've kind of always had it, and I guess it's a thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's where we're at, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Tony and I, and then every every once in a while, Tony and I will, will put our heads together and again try to sort of refresh things a little bit and and keep things going so you know it's interesting playing with another drummer all the time right i know there's a there's i've never had that really the opportunity to do that and keo stroud talks about that he grew up playing double he calls it double drums right you know the whole thing um is that the technical term for i I think so that's that's express my ignorance no i've heard it called double drumming and and Um, it seems to be a 70s thing really i mean you think about the almonds the dead um i think 38 special had two drummers for a little while and you know i it, it never seemed to me to make any sense the two guys that do it well now i think are uh jg johnson and, and tyler greenwell and uh Derek trucks band. oh yeah yeah, yeah um sure. but uh you know they're sitting right next to each other right on top of each other there's no click on that gig it's roots rock like i mean mm-hmm. that would be a fun mm-hmm. thing to do mm-hmm. um and then like in crimson like when bruford and pat mastoletto were playing together mm-hmm. i mean I, yeah. I don't think they ever played the same thing together Mm-mm. You know, and um, when I saw Bruford do the Yes reunion thing in the 90s with Alan White, I mean, that was more of a, you know, one guy sort of took the lead and the other guy kind of decorated. Yeah. Is, yeah. is what that was. Like, it almost seemed like more for the fans. Like Very much. I think so. Very much so. And, you know, Bruford played on the tunes that he played on and Alan played on the tunes that he played on. And exactly. and they sort of decorated here and yeah. there. And you get some some of the big crashes were bigger because you had two drummers. You yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a cool thing to see, though. That tour was I, pretty I, cool. I bet. My first concert ever yeah. was, yes. Oh, no kidding. That it was Alan White. And yeah. I think my first drum clinic was Alan White. We he played on Imagine, man. Oh, I know. It's crazy. I know. People forget that. And he yeah. did the double drum thing, too, with uh, Joe Cocker. Really? Mad Dogs and Englishman. Yeah, with Keltner, I think. Oh. And, you know. I think Keltner has a way of playing double drums that's really. Like, what that. Um, the concert for George. Where Keltner was there and yeah. Ringo's playing, and there's you know it's like there's three drummers going on at once. Keltner's back there hitting floor tom and snare drums with mallets, and just he's he's decorative, yeah, in his approach to yeah. that kind of thing, which was amazing. Um, 
speaking of Alan White, my as I yak and yak about drums and music, and my wife always says, Alan White, is he related to Barry White? <laughs> could not be further from the... Uh, fair question. It is. Yeah. <laughs> she says thank you. Um, I was uh, digging around because uh, a lot of the people that I've started interviewing are usually players that I've known for years, but you're one of the guys that I don't really know a whole lot about right. or are just met briefly once before, which kind of is, is fun for me because it's like it, it gives me an excuse to kind of really dig in and kind of see. And I've seen you play a couple of times and just killing it, man. Just sounding Thank great, you. Um, Thank you. For sure. Um, uh, when I was uh, surfing around and kind of looking at uh, seeing if you had any instructional videos on YouTube. Um, <laughs> actually, there's a couple things up there. Yeah, nothing, one, nothing major. But. Well, there's a there's a old um, real feel uh, warm up thing that you Sure. And this is kind of, I guess this is more of a, a personal question because you're like, I uh, came up with this stick pattern from a Pat Metheny first circle. Yeah. I'm a huge Pat Metheny fan. Yeah, me too. And I'm like, what? What's that from? You know? Yeah. And vinyl. And I have that on vinyl, actually. What? what first circle, the, the song? Yeah, I was just sitting around one day and it was on and... Uh, uh, it's one of my favorite songs ever of all yeah. time, First Circle. And it's this weird thing that's in like 22. Um, I forget what the grouping is, but I I um, was just sitting around listening to it one day. And I love paradiddles. <laughs> and I just happened to be sort of banging on my leg a little bit. My name is Ed, and I like paradiddles. Like, Hello, Ed. Uh, so it was... I was just kind of playing on my leg and listening, and before I knew it, I was kind of paradiddling my way through uh, First Circle, and um, I was like, oh, this could be a cool little sort of warm-up exercise, you know? And that's, uh, I still use it. Yeah. I mean, not all the time, but I still use it. And I mean, you know, the accents of the the song, I don't know if this will pick up on the table, but it's, you know, the, the, the main part, the main rhythmic theme of the song is... That's that's the main thing. Yeah. So I I just had been sitting around and I was just alternating the accents on my hand uh-huh. and just letting my hands naturally go the way they were going to go to get to where they needed to be for the accent. Mm-hmm. And it just came out like, you know, uh-huh. with with the thing. It's it's on it's on YouTube. You can yeah. find it. Um, but. It just seemed like a neat little thing, and so it's a really specific question. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, when the Evans guys were like, "Hey, me. can you say a little something about the pads here?" It was backstage at a gig, and yeah. it was just a little thing for their website, and yeah. and I was like, "Well, yeah." And, there, and there's another paradiddle exercise that I knew from my my drum corps days, mm-hmm. uh, which lasted a year. I wish they had lasted a little bit longer, but a year was all we could squeeze out uh, financially. But um, there was a paradiddle exercise that, that a guy had that stuck with me over the years because mm-hmm. I, I just thought it was so musical. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I still put Mike Hasek and I used to, I taught it to Mike and he, he and I used to play it together before nice. shows. So oh, that was cool, a lot of cool. fun. Yeah. Be fun. Having that, having that other drummer. Cause that's the thing. He was into the core thing too. You know, oh, he okay. was in the Navy okay. back in the day and he oh, marched okay. with a, a core. This is all pre DCI. I mean, Mike was, you know, significantly older than I was, but, <laughs> okay. but, um, he marched with the Corps around Jersey, where he grew up, um, 
So he was into into all that stuff too, and he kind of followed DCI and stuff like that. I see. So. That's and I've said this before. It's one thing I kind of missed out on. I feel like, um, can we kind of zoom through? I want to go through. Um, sure. Like what, what we've been bouncing all over the we place, man. We no, can talk about whatever you want. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's it's really great. No, I kind of want to actually. I kind of want to lead up to what led to your vertical horizon. How are we doing on time? We're doing great. Okay. Um, what led led to that the gig um yeah i mean that was that was from connecticut okay and you're you're with your dad's band okay so i graduated from high school um i did not go to college right after high school because again it was a a, a case of money and so after a few years of kicking around new london connecticut i played in a great band called absolute r&b remember all the absolute vodka ads that were out back in the day well we set up a band called from new london I was yeah. born in New London, yeah. Okay. And lived in the area. Like I was what? there not too long ago. Oh, okay. All around it. Loved it. Oh, yeah. It's a cool place. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a cool place. I think if somebody sunk some money into it, it could be like Portsmouth, New Hampshire or something. But again, that's another podcast. Rare. But uh, <laughs> save New London. Um, but um, we, uh, I had learned when I was like 20 years old that I could apply for financial aid as an independent so it was that weird thing. Like if I applied for it and reported my parents' income, I could get some assistance, but not enough for me to, to go. And of course, I wanted to go to the University of Miami, which was like, mm-hmm. hey, let's find the most expensive school that you possibly go to, you know. Yeah. But it was the music program that had such a reputation that, yes. that I wanted to go there. Mm-hmm. And I was done with winter in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And I had to get out. I mean, it was very much all the stuff you hear in 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 songs like I I'm in a small town and I want to go where the bright lights are and pink house and go make something happen and it's just not going to happen in East Lyme, Connecticut. As yeah. great as it is and it's home every time I'm there, I feel like I'm home and I hope to live there again someday if if you know, not during winter, we've covered that already, but yeah, yeah. you know, part-time would be great if if that's ever a possibility, but my mom still lives up there. I still have family back there. I still go there. It's where I feel at home and I'm walking around like Niantic, Connecticut. Yeah. Uh Niantic East Lyme's like the same town. Okay. Um I feel home. Yeah. You know, and uh, especially as I get older, like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's where it's my happy place, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So I knew I had to get out. Right. And I wanted to get out. It was, mm-hmm. you know, I knew what I wanted to do and it just wasn't going to happen in Connecticut. Yeah. So I realized that you could apply for financial aid as an independent. And, you know, I wasn't making any money. I was kicking around working as a janitor in a hospital and playing with the band which was a horn band we played stacks we played motown we played love shack we played everything mm-hmm. and that was a great learning experience yeah. too and we gigged a lot so that was pretty cool um but that didn't pay all the bills so yeah i had to sweep the floor at the hospital to, to so that i could play drums you yeah. know you do what you got to do so i get into miami and somehow i find a way to like get get there so I land in Miami on my 21st birthday, 1990, August 18th, if anybody's keeping score and wants gotcha. to buy me a gift. Duly noted. Um, <clears throat> I uh, land in Miami with a suitcase full of clothes and a suitcase full of like stuff, like my alarm clock, my stick bag, whatever. I don't even have drums. Right. I didn't go to orientation. Like I don't know anything about anything other than this music school is badass. I got in. I found a way to pay for a semester. I'm going. Yeah. We'll see what happens, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, and then I just 
got there and it was just the most amazing eye-opening thing and a couple of things happened for me when i was there the first thing that happened to me which i'm so glad it did was i wasn't egomaniacs not the right word but i thought i had my stuff together mm. i played in a band in connecticut played a bunch of different stuff mm-hmm. could play along with first circle and yeah. things like that and i thought okay i i got some skills here let's see maybe i could learn some other things i'd like to learn more about jazz and stuff like mm-hmm. that and i got there and like guys that were like 17 year old freshmen like just dropped my jaw like wow. I've got a lot to learn, uh-huh. a lot. And I picked that up right away, and I'm glad I picked it up right away because yeah. it was like, okay, time to get to work. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, about halfway through the first semester, I sent home for my drums. Like, hey, it'd probably be a good idea to have some drums down here if I'm majoring in music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I, I majored at first, well, and ended up getting my degree in music ed. And I kind of did that on purpose. I had had some theory classes in high school, but hadn't, uh, you know, I'd been out of high school now for a few years and hadn't really had a chance to apply any of that stuff. Okay. Um, so I, I needed a refresher with that, but I wanted to learn how to play other instruments because I didn't want to just be like drummer guy. Yeah. I wanted to be like a musician, right. you know? Um, and I didn't think I was going to be a virtuoso on all these instruments, but I figured if I learned enough about different instruments and how they interact with each other and all this other stuff, yeah, I could apply some of those principles to, to, to playing music. And, and sure. I've always just sort of thought of myself as a musician who plays the drums and not like as a drummer, right. you right. know? Um, as a guy that hangs out with musicians, right, as, exactly. as the joke goes. Exactly. Um, so I did, and I, I, I learned how to play these other instruments. But the, the, the biggest thing that happened for me at Miami was the exposure to people and playing with a million different people in a million different scenarios mm, right. and watching people play and listening to what people had to say. It was almost more of an education outside of the classroom than it was inside of the classroom. Mm-hmm. Right. And there were cats there when I was there, man. Mm-hmm. Jason Sutter, Brendan oh. Buckley, Jeff yeah. Babco. I mean, oh, yeah. Kevin Stevens. I mean, all these guys. Derek Franks, a bass, L.A. bass player, was there when I was mm-hmm. there. I uh, did a really funny New Year's gig with, with him once when we were down there. Like, We played like Spain by Chick Corea and all oh, that wow, stuff. Wow. And then someone asked if we could play New York, New York. <laughs> <laughs> none of them knew it <laughs> and i was like embarrassed i'm like you guys don't know new york because i'd been in the wedding band with the old man you know yeah, right, so right, it right, was right. A, it was a standard right. you know but um yeah all these guys were at miami when i was there and and um it was just a, a great experience so flash forward i, I go through school and uh, I, I played in my first original band when i was in miami a band called jennifer culture which was like a funk rock kind of thing yeah yeah which was kind of hip at the time um i have some recordings maybe i'll play them for somebody someday but but they're pretty cool it's a cool band still in touch with with the guys and and very influential guys in in my life like you know i i the experience was can happen yeah we flyered cars like the whole the whole deal you know um graduated from college moved to boston i figured okay boston was kind of done with miami the Julio gig was taken. The Buffett gig was taken. I'm I'm going to Boston. It's close close to home. Miami Sound Machine had yeah um, excessive amount of members. Well, I went to Boston with the idea. I wanted the Amy Mann gig. Oh yeah. She had just put out a record called Whatever, which is a fantastic album, yeah. and and I didn't know what her situation was at all. And yeah. it, it's funny. Years later, I met and and uh, 
her drummer John Sands, who's a great drummer, and and uh, I went up there with the idea that I was going to try to do that. So I would do this thing where I'd like write letters, make phone calls, like to the management office. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I, I you know the B fifty twos are going on tour. Well, I know that they're. Regular drummer Zach Alford is going on the road with Springsteen from reading it in the trades. Oh, wow. I'm going to call the B-52's management and see if they have a drummer. Well, what I didn't realize at the time is when you read something in a magazine, like that happened like five months ago. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) I didn't realize that at the time. I thought, okay, well, they got this information last month and then they put it on the newsstand, which, you know, remember I did my Modern Drummer interview and it came out like seven months later or something like that, you know? So, um... But I would make these phone calls. I mean, the day that I read that Dave Abruzzese got fired from Pearl Jam, I called the Pearl Jam office the, that day. And, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it's like, okay, well, that's not how you do it. But I was just whatever it took, you know, making a YouTube video of a drum cover. Like, that was my YouTube cover was, back was, then, making right. these little phone calls. Your you voice. Know? So I get up to Boston and... I'm knocking around a little bit, playing playing here and there. Nothing really major. I'm working for Borders, Books and Music, yep. right? Didn't want to get the teaching gig because I was afraid I was going to... You heard, you heard that the the, uh, the the guy and the history part of Borders had... You read it in the trades and you called Borders and said, you need somebody, you need a salesman there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Gotta, well, I had worked for Borders in Miami, so I transferred to a store okay. up in Boston. And uh, they, had, they had a music store there, which the store in Miami did not. Oh. Uh, CD, CDs yeah, right. and, and whatnot. So I went I went to work up there. And um, while I was up there, we um, they had a monthly co-op where it was like the sale CDs, like new music type thing. Mm-hmm. And this record came in by this band Vertical Horizon, and it was called Running on Ice. And uh, at, I remember when I first saw it, it had like a finger paint of a VH on it. And mm-hmm. it was like, oh, God, Van Halen's going to sue them, like mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. So anyway, like that later that day or the next day, um, my boss said, Hey, remember that VH band, that Van Halen? He's like, they're, they're local. Like the the guy's mom was in the store making sure we had the CD and all that stuff. So I'm like, moms do. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, that's kind of cool. You know, maybe we should open it up and play it. And, and uh, yeah, well we didn't, we didn't get around to it. But later that day, Matt Scannell, who was the, one of the singers and songwriters of Vertical Horizon, one of the guitar players, called the store and yeah. talked to my boss who was a guy named dave and and said hey you know my mom was in the store and she said you were really nice to her and uh-huh. well we're playing at this club in town called mama kin tonight can i mm-hmm. can i put you on the list i mean they were doing all their own pr and sure, stuff like sure. that so um dave got on the list with a plus one and i i became the mysterious plus one <laughs> and it's funny but my my wife now ex-wife had to talk me into going out that night like I'll never forget that. I I mm-hmm. I owe a, well I owe a lot to her for a lot because she was very supportive of everything. But she said, "Look, you, you've been talking about trying to learn more about the scene and getting more involved in the yep. scene. It's a free ticket. Just go. Right, you know. Right, right. I'm like, all right, right, I'm gonna go. You never know. So I went down to, to Mamakin on Lansdowne Street near Fenway Park, and. Again, I worked in a record store, total music nerd, reading Billboard, reading Mojo, blah, blah, blah. I had never heard of these guys, right? It was, a, I think it was a Wednesday or a Thursday night. The club is packed, packed. And everybody is singing along to like every song. And not only that, but the songs are like really good. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, like who are these guys, you know? Yeah. While I was at the show, I ran into a guy, a drummer friend of mine, 
that was living in Boston that I knew from Miami. It was Jason Sutter. Okay. Jason Sutter had moved to Boston. He was playing with a woman named Juliana Hatfield. Yes. Yeah. And I had seen Jason on like Conan O'Brien and he was, he kind of bust was one of the first guys to kind of bust out a little bit. And, uh, he, when he was at Miami, he was a graduate student. Well, he did his undergrad at North Texas. Okay. The drummer that was playing with vertical horizon at the time, who only played with them for a little while cause he didn't like life on the road was a guy that Jason knew from North Texas. And Jason knew that this guy had given his notice to the band. Oh, okay. Jason also knew that I was looking for a gig. Yeah. And he's yeah. like, you should talk to these guys. Like, you'd be perfect for this. Like, yeah. they asked me to do it, but I can't do it. I'm, I'm doing Juliana. Yeah. So I talked to them that night, and that led to sending in a tape, which led to an audition, which led to me getting a gig. Okay. That's the short version. But yeah. the long, the, you know, it's because Matt's mom decided to come into That's Borders. That's serendipitous. It's that crazy. That, but, and there's times that, that, that it's like, oh, I don't feel like going out. And, yeah. You know, and especially in a in a town where if they don't see you, you don't exist. Exactly, and the, and that's what those are the things that you have to do. And again, those are the X factors that get you gigs that mm-hmm. you can't learn from a book, right. that you can't learn from having a, a killer website. Like that's how gigs happen. Right, people it's tip to of your tongue you. stuff. Yeah, people say you know you you know I'll meet somebody for coffee that I just met in town mm-hmm. and they want a little advice or whatever, and I'm like, hey, I'm good. You know, free cup of coffee is cool. I, I got nothing else going on today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they always end everything. Well, if you hear of anything, let me know. It's like, man, I've never even seen you play. And this is not personal, but I'm not going to recommend you for a gig. I've never seen you play. I've never heard. I've never heard you play, you know, and like you can fix anything on the Internet. That's another thing, too, about those videos. That's true. You know, that's true. If you're That's not, a good point. If it's not happening yeah. and you know it's not really grooving, you can just beat detective it and you're good. Well, that's a good point. That, that I don't, I don't think people, I think that's the extreme cases. But, well, okay. You know. For sure. You know, sure. I, I don't think that's what people are doing. But you can do that. Yeah. You know. So I take that stuff with a grain of salt. I mean, and so, you know, my, you know, I've got like three, I have like a three guy short list in Nashville who are the guys I'm going to recommend if I can't do something. Mm-hmm. And somebody says, well, do you know of anybody else? Yeah. And. If I'm not thinking of those guys, I'm thinking about, okay, did I run into somebody last night? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I just talked I just talked to Keo. He's off this week. I, call, call this guy. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. You know, Travis McNabb just called me about having lunch. Call Travis. See if he's available. Like, but he's that, in your, he's that's in your, he's how in those brain. things happen. Sure. Yeah, he's yeah. in the forefront of my brain. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And really, it's like I'm only going to give a couple of names. So mm-hmm. if you're not in that top two or I didn't run into you last night yeah. or, or you didn't blow me away when mm-hmm. I saw you play for the first time this week, yeah. sorry, but my reputation's on the line as well recommending somebody for a gig. Sure, sure, you know? sure. You have to recommend the best person for those gigs. It's a tough yeah. thing, you yeah. know? Yeah. So it was cool to run into Jason that night mm-hmm. and Jason introduced me to Darren who was the drummer at the time, a guy named Darren. And, you know, Jason basically said, this guy can play. Now, I don't know if any conversations were had between him and Matt when I wasn't around, but maybe he's like, well, Sutter said this guy's worth giving a shot or whatever. Yeah. You know, but I talked to Matt on the phone and we liked a lot of the same music and I sent him a tape of uh, an original song that I had written and cut the drums for, uh, which I had sent to Amy's people when I was trying to get oh, Amy cool, Van's cool. van. Nice. And uh, um, 
it's funny. Years later, we we did a VH1 awards show, and at the post show party, Amy was there, and she was there with her manager, who's this guy Michael Hausman, who was the drummer for Till Tuesday. Yeah, and he got into management and managed Amy at the time. Oh wow! And I and I told him the story. Like I sent a tape and everything. He's like, I probably still have it in a file somewhere. Oh, you know, that's great. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. You know, but um. Yeah, so um, I ended up auditioning at Matt's mom's house in Worcester, Worcester, Massachusetts, in the basement. And, you know, you talk about auditions, it was just a case of being uber prepared. Um, They started with, they said, well, we'd like to start off with, there's this newer tune that we've been working on, and we just kind of want to play it, and you just play like what you feel. And in my head, I'm like, that's how you audition somebody for an original act. See how you throw something at them that they have not heard and see how you play together, what kind of things come out of it, how it feels like that kind of thing. Then we went through a few songs from the record and they said, well, is there anything you want to do that, that we haven't done? Well, let me back up just a little bit. So the next day after the concert, we went into the store and opened up the record (laughs) and the first tune came on and it was kind of cool and had some really cool drumming on it. And it was like, uh, Under the Table and Dreaming by Dave Matthews Band had come out at that point. And he's right, like, right, right. well, he sounds a little bit like the guy from Dave Matthews Band. So I go to the credits and I'm and I'm checking it out. Sure enough, it's Carter Beaufort. Oh, really? Matt and Keith went to Georgetown, which is where they met. Yep, yep. And while they were there, they knew a guy named Michael McDonald, un, unrelated to Doobie's Michael McDonald. Okay. Michael was a tour manager for Dave Matthews Band and has since gone on to start like ATO records and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So. Mm-hmm. And he manages John Mayer now. Michael does. so Or he used to. I don't think he does anymore. But he manages some big people. And um, they said to Michael, hey, do you think Carter would play on this? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, it couldn't hurt to send him a tape. Right. You know? And Carter's name was just starting to show up everywhere because yeah. that record was all over the place. Sure. And the drumming, I mean, I'm sorry, he's the star of that band. You know, yeah. I think a lot of people go to see that band to dance. And he's the reason why they dance. Right, you know? right, right. Um, so they were able to get Carter on some of the tracks for that record. So that was kind of cool. So before I left the audition, they said, well, is there anything you'd like to do? I was like, well, I'd love to play this song called Answer Me, which had sort of a 50 ways kind of thing on mm-hmm. it and mm-hmm. and then bounced into a regular groove for the chorus. And it was very Carter-esque. And we hadn't done too much of that and i wanted to sort of show them that i i could so play it was, this it was way the more difficult of the yeah material. i could i could play this way if need be and they were like oh that's a tall call like they hadn't really played that song much yeah um i don't know if it was because of a drummer thing or they just didn't right, think right, of it but yeah so they had to kind of it's funny at one point they they were doing He's something auditioning us well that's kind of what happened it was like <laughs> no 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 it goes to the, yeah. the, it goes right into the chorus there it's extended the second time around yeah. and yeah. and they were like oh this guy's telling us what to do you yeah. know but it's weird you know i i you never know what's going to make an impression i found out after i got the gig that one of the first things they noticed as i was loading my stuff in and i mean i had to be driven to the to worcester because i didn't have a car at this point i was living in downtown boston you don't need a car right you know my friend casey drove me out to the to the uh audition she had a pickup truck and i just kind of threw my drums in the back and and i had some cases you know they were beat up like old humes and berg type kind of things they were beat up that i bought off a guy in miami but i had Mm -hmm. cases and i found out actually i think a couple of years later that you know one of the first thoughts that matt had was like oh this guy's got cases man this is (laughs) you know because because darren was packing drums up in like cardboard boxes and they were just putting them underneath the rv they were touring in an rv at that at that point 
So you, you just never know anything. So going back to something we said earlier, which seems like hours ago, but was probably just about a half hour ago, you can't be concerned with what you think people want. You just need to go do your thing, yeah. you know? And Are you, you talking to me right now? I'm talking to everybody. Okay. Like I if, just feel like you're talking to me right now. <laughs> if, if you are more concerned with what somebody wants, you know, if, if it doesn't work out, that wasn't the band for you anyway. Go to a different audition. Yeah. Like be bummed about it for about a half hour and then move on. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, yeah. again, I and and the vertical thing. I again, I think because this was original music, you know. Yeah. So I think it was just a case of sort of being prepared and and playing in all the cover bands for years helped me with groove and time and playing in ensembles and stuff like that. Yeah. And yeah. Having been an original band, I knew about what that could be like, and there were band dynamics. Then I learned I had to learn how to tour. And that's another thing too. Yeah. Like the hang is almost more important oh, oh, than yes. you yes. know, you, you there might be guys with better chops than you, but if they're jerks, you're not gonna want to live with them twenty four seven and they're right. not gonna get the gig. That's a tough thing. You that's know it's a tough thing. And we've talked about that a couple different times, but I think it's something that people need to know. Yeah. It's it's that was always if somebody would come down to Nashville and said, hey, um, I know this person from Columbus where I grew up, and, and uh, they said to talk to you about, and I say, okay, well, you know, you got to be able to play, and here's these other bits of it, pieces of advice, but by the time I get to the third or fourth step, I say, don't be an asshole. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, and be able to get along. Because you, you won't work. Right. right. And, end of story. Like, you, I never you, thought of that. You get drummed out of town, eh? You like that? <laughs> right. huh? See? Not really, but thanks. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> appreciate it, Ed. Thanks for coming by. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, and just to tie that up real quick, like, like, you know, I, I think, and I hope because there's going to be life after the doobies. I hope that seeing that I did like nine years with one band, ten years with another band, it's going to be like, okay, well, he can hang, like, right, you know, right. he didn't get fired or, or he hasn't been in a million different situations. He's been in like really like two long-term situations. Yeah. It's like, okay, well. People like that with gigs. It is. It is true. But it, and it's funny because you see people. It's like I've done this and I've done that. And you and you you look at their that list of things that it, outside of a discography or outside of you know working with certain artists on sessions. You're, it's 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 you're wondering like why have they toured with all these different people? Why haven't they? That's a good yeah. point. You know, I, I guess I'm just kind of going it over right now. Yeah. Well, some head. gigs are just not long term gigs. I mean, you that's get, true. You know, that's you get hired true. to do a tour and you're let go at the end of that tour because yeah. you know that's a good point. And then every once in a while, there's like a retainer. There's, yeah. If somebody likes you and they want to keep you around, they'll pay you a retainer to, to mm -hmm. kind of be available when mm -hmm. they call. Yeah. Yeah. And then other than that, it's just luck of the draw. It's like, yeah. well, if yeah. I can't get you, I'll call somebody else, yeah. you know. But that time preparedness, you know, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, it is luck of the draw. But every, you still have to be, when that door opens, you've got to be ready to. Every audition I've ever done, I was over prepared for. Okay. Over prepared. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was supposed to learn six tunes from the Doobies Live at Wolf Trap. I learned the whole thing, and and the DVD, like yeah. the CD, was much shorter than the DVD. I learned everything that was on the DVD. Wow. Now that was a little bit easier because I grew up with these songs. Uh, yeah, sure. You know but what I mean? Still, but but still. even so, 
No, you know, so you're right. You didn't. You didn't let the fact that you grew up on it say, "Oh, I've got this." Yeah, the vertical thing I was over prepared for. You were telling them the arrangement. I, I listened to the song backwards and forwards. I yeah. mean, and yeah, to the point that able, I was able to correct them when yeah. they when yeah. they when they went. And it the, sounded like you enjoyed the material, and so I mean, that, that, yeah. Well, I wasn't gonna. I, I I wasn't gonna do something where I didn't enjoy the material. Yeah, right, I right. mean, I that was just something for me. It I never. I never got locked into that. And I've been fortunate enough too that like the first real big gig that I had that wasn't my original band in Miami was the vertical thing. Yeah. I did like it. Yeah. And it just kind of snowballed from, you know, when they started up until we, we kept going. products that people are endorsing so oh, sure. they can do that they can do the shout out but then also if you have any word on that for people that are looking for endorsements oh, or... i have lots of words <laughs> <laughs> yeah well my my guys are, are drum workshop and zildjian and vader and evans okay so those are those are my guys i've been with them for a very long vader is a recent uh thing for me i was with promark for a long time mm-hmm. okay. um and uh some kind of got Things got a little squirrely after their merger for me okay. um, with Dario, and and so I felt like I had to jump ship. Um, and it was a quality thing; it wasn't a, a they didn't bump me down or anything like that. It was just, yeah. there, there was it was a quality control issue for me personally, and so I felt like I had to jump. So I, I landed at Vader, um, and actually, it's cool to talk about that because. I think if you're getting into this and endorsements are a priority for you, you're completely wasting your time. Mm-hmm. I can't say it enough. Go play with yeah. as many people as possible and, yeah. and in as many situations as you can. The next thing you know, you have a regular gig that has you visible out in front of people. Mm-hmm. Now you have something to offer to a company. Right. You know, people get so hung up on the idea of endorsements because they probably think it's all about free gear and it's all about like uh, ads and things like mm-hmm. that. And I can't remember the last time I was in an ad for any of my companies. Mm-hmm. I really don't care. That's not why I do this. Yeah. You know, um, I bought a DW kit with my record advance from Vertical Horizon. I got a $3,500 advance mm-hmm. when we signed the contract with RCA. Mm-hmm. So I needed, I had a, a Tama Swing Star kit from like the 80s, you know, which me too, which was doing me fine. I still have it it's in storage <laughs> down in South Nashville. What color? White. Okay, mine yeah, was red. With the Stuart Copeland snare, which I still use on, on sessions from time to time. Awesome. Actually, one of the lug casings is taped on there because I, uh, it broke off. I got the screw out, but I never... I was too lazy about like screwing it back in or whatever. And I, all of a sudden it just gave this drum some character and it sounds a certain way. And I think that it sounds a certain way because that one lug that casing one lug is you. gaff taped onto the side of it, you know? <laughs> so I just leave it that way and it's, it's cool, you know? Um, but anyway, that was my kit. And I was like, well, I'd like to get a little bit more of a pro level kit. Um, and, um, I tried to do something with Tama. I couldn't get anybody on the phone. And, and I was like, you know what? I'm kind of going about this the wrong way. I'm going to go listen to kits and I'm going to buy a kit with this money, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I bought, ended up buying a really nice DW kit, still my favorite kit. 
Um, so the kid I recorded both the Vertical Horizon records with, a couple other records around Boston with some people. I did some producing for a while in, mm-hmm. in the early 2000s uh, before I moved to Nashville. And I ended up playing on most of the stuff I produced. And I used this same kit. Awesome. And it's, awesome. it's a great kit. And um, had it on the road, took it around the world with, with Vertical. And I just, uh, it sounded great. I loved it. So I had that. I had some cymbals. I had a drumstick that I used. Once I got my first touring schedule, I wrote, uh, I couldn't remember if I called or wrote letters. I can't remember. I probably called and then sent in the stuff that they wanted to send in after. But this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. I use this product of yours, which I've used for however long. I love it. Just wanted to make you aware of who I am and what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, Promark, we have a show in Houston coming up. Would love to invite you out if you'd like to yeah. to come see the band. You know, here's a CD, you know, mail the CD and, and all that stuff. Promark was the first uh, company on board. Well, before I get to that, that's how I approached endorsements. I see. It's like, okay, I have a gig. I have a gig that has visibility. I'm going to tell these people I'm using their stuff. Mm-hmm. I would love to start a relationship with you. I do not need or want anything from you at this time. Mm-hmm. I just want to make you aware of who I am and what I'm yeah, doing. Yeah. And and I've been told by Pat Brown, John DeChristopher, at Zil, you know, who used to work for Zildjian, uh, Garrison at DW, like that. I played it perfectly, apparently. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah right. You know, I never asked for a thing, you know. Yeah. And Johnny D was like, hey, you know, if you crack a symbol let us know mm-hmm. you know we'll send you a replacement you ship ship the crack one back because they'll melt them down and use, mm-hmm. use them right metal. right right um promark was the first people on board pat, nice. pat brown heard the music loved the music came to see the band loved the band said we'd love to get behind you cool. here's what we can offer you i still bought sticks mm-hmm. i just got them at a discounted price right you right. know um same thing with evans you yeah. know yeah, we like lo- we like what you're doing. You're all over the place. We'd we'd love to get involved. Here's what we can offer you. Mm-hmm. Again, there was no free in anything. Mm-hmm. You know, Garrison. Hey, if you need anything within reason, you know, lug casings, rims, sure. or whatever. Sure, give give us a call. Yeah, you know, and and I've since gotten like three, four kits from them. Wow. DW. Yeah, you know, Doobie's higher, little higher visibility mm-hmm. as sure. well. But and they already had a working relationship with DW because both Keith Knudsen and Mike Hasek oh, okay. were DW guys. But in the case of Promark, I mean, okay, so I decided uh, last year to I was going to move away from Promark and try something else. Mm-hmm. Right, pay attention, kids, because this is important. A little bit of a track record at this point, you know. I've played on a few records, and and yeah. I'm learning more and more that younger guys in the drumming community have heard my work and stuff and mm-hmm. that's very amazing is very lucky that that you know i'm on somebody's radar it was kind of cool yeah so and big gig with the doobies i've been doing for 10 years right mm-hmm. i went to forks mm-hmm. I, I i took the stick i was using and researched online the specs for each of the companies vic Verth, regal zildjian um i actually forgot about vader until i was in the store right um I went to Forks and I dropped about like 150 bucks or so on drumsticks. And at this point, I didn't even know what drumsticks cost because it had been a while since I, yeah, yeah. you know, bought drumsticks because I moved up the ladder endorsement wise yeah. a little bit, you know. 
I went in and bought a bunch of drumsticks with my own money and was like, okay, well, what, you know, and I mean, I had one guy say to me, dude, you didn't just get on the phone with the companies and say, hey, I'm Ed Toth from the Doobie Brothers. What can we do? It's like, no, man, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. Yeah. I'm not going to use something I don't like. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I went out and bought a bunch of sticks and found something I thought was pretty cool. It was a Vader. And I got on the phone with Vader and, and, and well, I sent an email, you know, yeah. and I no presumptions whatsoever. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. And yeah. I run into this recent issue and I've been using this that you make and it's pretty cool. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was just wondering if you're adding artists to your roster at all. I was also wondering if you make this with a teardrop tip. And I mean, I was very specific about kind of what yeah, I wanted. You could probably tell that you knew, you knew what you wanted. Yeah. You know and and they responded in a in a way that was like, hey, yeah, man, I've heard of you and know what you're doing. And, and uh, I'd love to try to help you out. Have you tried this model? Mm-hmm. Have you tried that model? They sent me about a dozen pairs of sticks of different things that i hadn't tried out you know Mm -hmm. and and they said some of these are way off of your specs but just you never know like give them a shot or whatever and i mean i worked with chad at vader for about a good six or seven months before we finally honed in on something Mm -hmm. that that is working for me you know which he which he's been great about so now i'm a vader guy okay you know but again it was a case of using finding what i wanted sure go play play what you want to play yeah because ultimately it's your sound that's going to get you hired yeah not what kind of gear you have i don't know anybody that ever got a gig (laughs) based on their gear Mm. you know and if they did i'm kind of curious as to what kind of gig that would have been you know what i mean good point you know i i mean i i just and and i i know that in some cases people have not gotten gigs because because of their gear mm-hmm. it, la in particular is weird with the whole like oh well you know it's a dw i don't know about that you don't have a vintage ludwig it's like dude f off did it sound good <laughs> did we play well together yeah you know I, yeah. the visual thing yeah which you know you go back to mtv and yeah and i love mtv I used to sit around and watch it as a family in my house but boy <laughs> did it wreck a lot of things a lot of things oh, yeah. Um, anyway, that's that's a whole different topic. But endorsement wise, find what you like, right. play what you like, and go play. Lately, I've been exploring the idea of um, uh, dipping myself into the clinic waters a little bit because mm, um, okay. I've been asked, and for a long time I didn't think I had much to say, and I didn't think I was ready, and and now I kind of think I do. Yeah, um, there's been enough experiences, and it's these kind of things I'd like to talk about with with people. Somebody else can do the left foot clave. Somebody else can do the, the blast beats and all that stuff. And I love that stuff. Don't get me wrong. I wish yeah, I could play yeah. some of that stuff. But, yeah. you know, I play songs for a living. I, I back up yeah, singers of course. is what I do. Of course. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot to learn with that, certainly musically speaking. But then also it's this real life stuff that people don't get access to. Right. You know, being being easy to get along with right um you know preparedness yeah the fact that that when you're starting out endorsements don't matter like yeah. just take it off the table yeah. it shouldn't yeah. even be a priority for you yeah. right now you know yeah. and you like you'll get to that like yeah. you, you'll get to that once you get out there and get some yeah. things happening yeah. so i man i totally believe that I, yeah. and I, that's kind of what motivates us to, to kind of do this to have these conversations and um all the gear folks are like clapping right now. <laughs> well, uh, all the artist relation guys are like, yeah, somebody said it. 
Michael McDonald ever get together with you guys and play? <laughs> he does. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've gotten to play with Michael on, on a couple of occasions, and I'll never forget the first time I did it. It was mostly when Michael plays with us. It's for like a fundraiser, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, we, we were doing a gig on a golf course in Hawaii, like, mm-hmm. as you do, yeah. and um, he was on the gig, and it was the first time he was on the gig, and he was sitting right in front of me, and he didn't want the click track or anything. He's just like, give me a, give me a loud count off or we're going to do what a fool believes, you know? So I'm like, okay, cool. Michael McDonald's looking at me for the count off. This is kind of rad. I better not screw it up, you know? Mm-hmm. So I count him off and we start playing and it's going. And what a fool believes is not regularly in our, the only Michael song that's regularly in our set is taking it to the streets. Oh, okay. We only do what a fool believes minute by minute. It keeps you running stuff like that. If Michael's on the gig. Okay. And, and I guess that makes sense in some ways. But uh, so we get to the first verse and, you know, he's singing and the first, you know, I hear him coming through my in-ears and the, the, <laughs> the first thought that goes through my mind is like, hey, that guy sounds like Michael McDonald, <laughs> you know, so it was just weird. And then so I've been able to do a handful of doobies things with Michael. And then um, a few years back, I got hired by Mark Russo, our sax player. To be the house drummer for a benefit concert in St. Louis, uh, Tony Larusa, the baseball manager, has an mm-hmm. animal rescue foundation, okay. and he does benefit concerts every year to help raise money for that. And he's friends with Mark, so Mark kind of puts the bands together and stuff like that. Well, one year, uh, Tommy Johnston did it solo from the Doobies, mm-hmm. and McDonald did it, mm-hmm. and so. I got to play uh, a couple of solo Tom Johnston things that we never play mm. from solo albums that he put out in the 80s. And I got to play with Michael, so I got to play like I Keep Forgetting mm-hmm. and some of the Motown stuff. And I'm sure. like, I was so nervous, dude. Oh, really? What? Well, it's Jeff on I Keep Forgetting, Percaro. Oh, right. And it's just like, I got to cop this oh. with Mike and a couple other heavy like San Francisco Bay Area guys. Yeah. Jerry, I think Jerry Cortez was playing guitar, who's with Tower of Power now. Terry Miller was playing bass, and it was like, all right, I, I can do this. <laughs> so, so that was a lot of fun. And then uh, a couple of years later, I did it again with uh, Mark and, and uh, with Tommy Johnson. It was mostly just doobie stuff, but I also got a chance to play with uh, Tim Schmidt from the Eagles. Oh, okay. So we get to play I Can't Tell You Why with, with <laughs> Tim Schmidt, which was pretty cool. Oh, so wow, man. These little things just kind of pop up here and there, and, yeah. and they're always exciting and we we did a gig in san francisco at at shoreline for uh it was like a no nukes thing which the doobies had done in the late 70s -hmm. well they did another one just a few years ago and they tried to get as many people from the original bill on the bill this year and i think with the exception of tom petty and springsteen they got everybody else so bonnie Raitt, crosby stills nash jackson brown like it was kind of cool and uh so, you know, we played sort of early early on. I mean, not early in the day, but we were we were sort of one of the first of the bigger bands to play. And um, we came to listen to the music. Out strolls Bonnie. Oh. Out strolls Jackson. Stills. Yeah. Graham. Crosby. It's like, we're playing listen to the music. And I, at one point, I, I told my drum tech afterwards... At one point, I was sitting up there playing, and I was just like, my freaking record collection is on stage with me right now. <laughs> it's just that's, that's so bizarre yeah, and surreal. And, and uh, you know, it's just those fun little moments like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, when Man. when Mickey Curry comes up and says, dude, you killed it. Like, you know, it's like, dude, you're Mickey Curry. Like, 
You don't don't be telling me that, <laughs> you know. That's, so man, that's great. And so those things are fun for sure. And and uh, you know, for every one of those, there's a you know, walking up the drum riser and face planting on it because you tripped on the steps or something like that. So you know. <laughs> did you have that? Man, I had that at a hometown gig in Connecticut. <laughs> we we vertical did a tour in in uh, '99 or 2000 one of those years with third eye blind mm-hmm. we played at the oakdale musical theater which was like an, an institution at home you know mm-hmm. and it was like oh i'm playing here this is kind of cool and i had my whole freaking family on the list man I, I just tons of tickets that i left for people and uh we were going out to do our little encore and and uh i was looking at the crowd and kind of digging on the moment as I walked up the steps to the drum riser and I, my shoe ended up getting caught and I just, <laughs> I dug it right in, almost right into the drum stool and oh. just kind of stood up, shrugged my shoulders and, and, and played on. How was the show? I loved it when the drummer fell and it just, yeah. I, it almost seemed like an accident, but I know he did it and he just. Yeah, just, that's a thing, man. You should keep that. <laughs> okay, well, I'm not Chevy Chase. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't do that. Um, well, let's talk about um, what you're doing now. Um, you got some projects. And- well, yeah, I have one project that's really sort of near and dear to my heart. And it's a project I'm working on that doesn't really have a name yet, mm-hmm. but it's with John Cowan, who plays bass in the doobies mm-hmm. um and i play in john's band around as well it's sort of rooted in bluegrass but mm-hmm. uh, I'm, i take out a little four-piece kit and basically play jazz drums i always say i'm a rock drummer playing jazz on a bluegrass gig when i play with john so that's always fun doing that but he's playing bass and singing in this project and uh, keith howland who's a guitar player with chicago mm-hmm. is playing on it as well we were calling it secret agent orange but we're going to sort of come up with something better but uh it's really awesome it's i can't even really describe it it's it's uh it's rock with with roots elements and a sprinkle of prog here and there particularly with the big vocal stuff because we do a lot of harmony stacking are you singing on this one i'm gonna have to when we when we take it out which we're hoping to take out this take it out this fall Okay, I just let John did most of the singing on it, even yeah. the harmonies, because he's just so good. Okay. Um, but there's a couple things that I'm on, and Keith's on some stuff too, and and Keith does like a spoken word on on one of the tunes, which is really cool. And then we've got a bevy of keyboard players on it because it's it's something we've just sort of started working on. It just came out of jamming. Mm-hmm. We were just jamming, and the next thing we know, like okay, there's songs in here like mm-hmm. let's start putting it together and it just came together really naturally and really organically mm-hmm. and i'm really hoping that this project becomes a regular like full-time thing like maybe enough so that when our quote-unquote day jobs are over with the doobies and with chicago that we can just you know start dumping all our time into this but uh got a bunch of keyboards pl- players on it jeff babco the aforementioned miami guy who lives in la keith Keith knows Jeff from the Virginia area, um, and I knew Jeff from school, so he's on some stuff. Uh, Bill Payne from Little Feet is on a couple oh, tracks. Yeah. Uh, Butch Taylor, who was in Dave Matthews Band, is on some stuff, okay. and uh, a local guy, Dame Bryant, who played with Clint Black for years, okay. and ironically enough, used to be in a band with Carter Beaufort in Virginia, Dane did. Wow. He was in a band called Secrets with Keith Horn, the bass player, and, and Carter. Jeez. <laughs> Burn and stuff. I got a recording of some of that stuff recently, and wow. it's just really cool fusion-y, like pre-Dave yeah. Matthews band 
an Alan Holdsworth tribute band called Secrets. Yeah, right. That would be cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, this project is, we're, we're just about done with what would be an album's worth of music, but we don't quite know how we're going to deal with that yet because albums are slowly but surely becoming a thing of the past. And it's weird. Like I want a CD, like our demo demographic, the, the doobie Chicago demographic wants a CD, right? Kids right. want it for free. Yeah. You know, everybody else wants to stream it or buy it on iTunes. So I'm not quite sure how we're going to approach the music uh, delivery other than the fact, you know, it'll be available on iTunes and all that stuff. But I don't know if we're going to approach it, presenting it as an album or just sort of song by song um we're not quite sure how we're going to do that yet yeah. we're, we're talking to some management people trying to get management people involved with the band and i'm hoping that they have a better idea of that because that's what they do yeah. like i play the drums like i don't i don't do that stuff right, right, you right. know i have opinions on a couple of things but i'm willing to listen to the experts as well sure so we've been talking to a couple of people and and i you know everybody forgets that you know everybody forgets the business part of music business you know so uh, you know when i go into a meeting with a prospective manager i mean i want somebody to hand me a business plan i want somebody to hand me a one or two year business plan like this is how we're going to get this thing off the ground and like we talked about before, I mean, it's it's ever evolving. So how is that? You know, this right now, this project, how is that going to get out? What what's the what's the most obvious? And then you you have to know your um, demographic. Well, we know we, we know what we know the type of audience that this is going to cater to, mm -hmm. and we're just going to go out and play. Mm -hmm. We're just going to go out and do gigs and hopefully everything will just kind of fall into place and take care of itself. And again, it's the same. Why wouldn't I take the same advice that I would give a kid? Like we're going to get in a van and we're going to go play some gigs and let mm -hmm. people know that we exist, mm -hmm. you know, and you mm -hmm. can find us online if you want do to. Do you have cases for but your drums? You, <laughs> yeah, see, I do actually. Wow. Very nice cases. Nice. <laughs> There's this saying that, that a friend of mine has always used, and it's right on. It's always about the next gig. What's he mean by that? And I mean that particularly with us working drummers. It's always about the next gig. I got a good gig right now. I've been doing it for 10 years. Yeah. These guys are 20 years older than me. Yeah. They're going to hang it up at some point. Mm -hmm. I'm going to need things into place. Mm -hmm. my, my skills, both musically and communication wise yeah. my relationships with people the most important thing that you will ever have in this business yeah. your relationships with people yeah um and my radar tuned into sort of what's going on and who's doing what and who's looking for drummers and who's not looking for drummers type kind of thing right you know which i'll zoom in on that a little bit more when the time comes you know yeah doesn't it's it's always about that yeah it's always about because i could this gig could be over tomorrow yeah right and then what am i gonna do yeah you know hopefully find another gig yeah you know and yeah. it's it's the it's the being prepared for that mm -hmm. now if you're neil peart Stuart copeland it's not about the next gig no you got your gig you found your niche you're good to go yeah that's different yeah. but you know we're talking working drummer like i am not mm -hmm. a band member of the doobie brothers i mm -hmm. do not participate and i'm a salaried employee mm -hmm. with the mm -hmm. doobie brothers yeah and it's always about the next gig which is why we're trying to lay the groundwork for this other project now. Yeah. So that we can 
sl- either slide into it because it becomes too busy that we can't do both anymore, or we do it as a part time-ish kind of thing. And when our day gigs are done, we've got our other gigs. That's interesting. Yeah, I like that, man. Another important thing for, for any younger people that might be listening to us that are putting bands together, like avoid the control freaks. Like everybody does something well. And hopefully everybody can recognize what that is and you can all work together. I mean, you're working towards the same goal. Yeah. You're putting in the same amount of hours and the same amount of work, albeit some of it might be in different areas. You know, Neil, good old Uncle Neil, has talked about a, a thing that they have in Rush that has worked for them for 40 years now. Share the workload, share the reward. Mm. You'll never have a problem. And I'll agree. You know, well, you'll still have problems, but, you know, and you don't always agree on everything. But you know what? You never need to make, you you need to make sure to set yourself up that you're never arguing about financial matters. Yeah, that's. Because that shit will break up your band real fast. Real fast. Sure. Sure. It's the number one reason for divorce, so. (laughs) So many people talk about being in a band is like being in a marriage. I used to laugh at that. Like, you know, like, why do people keep saying it? That's such crap. You know what? It's exactly like being in a marriage to more than one person. Yeah. And it takes a lot of work, you know? I think there's a lot to learn from the Mormons. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, I'm telling you, there's, there's a niche market out there for therapists. Like, all they do is bands. Like, there should be like band therapists. I'm oh, I gotta you. go. Yeah, <laughs> something. I'm thinking to the. Ne- I'm thinking already thinking of the next gig. Yeah, Are right. The for the- there, there, there's something there. Man, this is good. I appreciate it. I'm gonna wrap it up. Yeah, man. Thanks for having um, me. I appreciate it. 